In the name of God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. I invite all the teens up through the 12th grade to please come forward. Congratulations, first place piano competition, yay. <laughs> so, in our first reading today, one of the greatest testimonies, the most well-known for sure, um, of what God has done in someone's life. St. Paul talks about it. In fact, St. Luke writes about it three times in the book of Acts, and Paul talks about it in another one of his epistles, and so it's, it's out there, about how, how he was persecuting all of, the, all of the Christians, the brand new Christians who were all Jewish at the time. And he was putting them to death and putting them in prison, and, and he was on his way to Damascus to do the same thing, and the Lord, this bright flash of lightning knocked him off his horse, fell to the ground, he heard a voice, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And... And, and, and Saul asks who it is. And so he talks about it and, and he's blinded and he goes back into Damascus and uh, he's blinded for a while and Ananias comes and, and the Lord speaks to Ananias, go lay your hands on Saul and let him receive his sight. And Ananias is a little bit afraid because Saul's killing all the Christians and, and, uh, and the Lord says, that's okay. Saul is going to bring all of the Gentiles to salvation or at least those that choose. So a great testimony, great testimony. That's kind of, this is the kind of story we tell at our prayer and praise once a month uh, on Friday nights when we gather, how God works in our lives. Now my story was not that dramatic. Maybe yours wasn't either, maybe yours isn't, or maybe yours has not yet come. But I will tell you this, I was raised in the church and the Lord began forming me at a very early age because my parents brought me to church every single week and I served as an acolyte uh, and did all those things that we're supposed to do, but the Lord was forming me. But the Lord did speak to me one time after high school and he told me literally all through the night that he wanted me to be a priest in his church. And, and, and so, okay right? It took me a long time to go back to school and get my undergraduate degree, then seminary for actually five and a half years, but uh, got my master's degree and, 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 and brought me into, into the church through ordination as a deacon. And, and by the way, this is my, my, let me see, as a priest, this is, I was ordained as a priest on this day, May 1st, May Day, on, uh, uh, in 1999, so however many years that is. Yeah, a few years anyway. Yeah. I always remember because it's Mayday, Mayday, Mayday. <laughs> help us, Lord, help us. He's being ordained. Now, um, so, so the Lord spoke to me mightily and strongly, and, and, and I tell that testimony from time to time in more detail. But we all have our testimony. We all have our stories of how God works in our lives and brings us closer to him and helps us move out into ministry to bring others closer to him. And if you haven't searched for the Lord's voice in your life, 
you need to start searching for it because he speaks and he wants you to listen he wants all of us to listen so search your hearts when you pray don't just talk to God let him speak to you too and see what he has to say to you and there might be a time in your life when the Lord breaks in in a mighty way and gives you a certain task that he wants you to to accomplish or to be but he will speak so listen listen attentively okay all right god bless thank you for coming up hey maggie help me thank you okay i know that we have some guests today and i just want you to know that i am required by the congregation that came with the contract that I'm supposed to tell a joke at the beginning, beginning of every sermon. And I do want you to know, know that I'm worried about the congregation because the first service after I told the joke, they were laughing so hard on the inside and they didn't let it out and you're gonna bust your guts if you don't let it out. <laughs> One day many, many years ago, a fisherman the fisherman's wife blessed her husband with twin sons. And they loved the children very much, but they couldn't think of what to name the children. And finally, after several days, the fisherman said, let's not decide on names right now. If we wait just a little while, the names will simply come to us. Well, after several weeks had passed, the fisherman and his wife noticed a, pecul a peculiar fact. When left alone, one of the boys would always turn toward the sea and the other boy would face inland. It didn't matter which way the parents positioned their children, the same child always faced the same direction. And so the fisherman suggested, let's call the boys towards and away. His wife agreed, and from that point on, the boys were simply known as towards and away. Well, the years passed, the lads grew tall and strong. The day came when the aging fisherman said to his sons, boys, it is time that you learned how to make a living from the sea. They provisioned their ship, said their goodbyes, set sail for a three-month voyage. Three whole years passed by before the grieving woman saw a lone man walking toward her house. She recognized him as her husband. She cried, my goodness, what has happened to my darling boys? And the ragged fisherman began to tell the story. He said, we were just barely one whole day out to sea when Tords hooked into a great fish. Tords fought long and hard, but the fish was more than his equal. For a whole week they wrestled upon the waves without either of them letting up. Yet eventually the great fish started to win the battle and towards was pulled over the side of the boat. He was swallowed whole, and we never saw him again. And the wife said, oh dear, that must have been terrible. What a huge fish that must have been. What a horrible fish. And the fisherman said, yes, it was. But you should have seen the one that got away. 
you should have seen the one that got away. Just, yeah, don't bust your guts, folks. Let it out. Let it out. Today, I want to begin with Simon, who is out on his boat fishing alongside the other disciples. He's brooding. He's thinking deep thoughts, not quite sure what to make of all that has happened. Then there's a flashback. He recalls how some months earlier, many months earlier, he had left his fishing nets at the seashore to become a follower of Jesus and how Jesus liked him and included him and even changed his name from Simon to Peter, Petros, the rock, because Jesus felt that Simon was strong and stable and solid like a rock. But then all of a sudden, things turned sour. Jesus was arrested, and Peter, the rock, became afraid, and on that fateful night, he he denied the Lord three times. The next day, Good Friday, Jesus was nailed to a cross and Simon Peter was devastated. He was shattered, defeated, brokenhearted. But then came Easter and Simon Peter was at one and the same time thrilled beyond belief, excited over Christ's resurrection and yet confused and perplexed about his own future. Peter returns to Galilee with his friends. Several days pass, nothing has happened. And here is where our gospel reading comes in this morning from John chapter 21. Simon, Peter, and his friends, they have been waiting there in Galilee for some time, just waiting for some direction from God, but nothing has happened. And finally, in typical fashion, Simon Peter gets impatient. He can't take it anymore. And he says, I'm going fishing, as if to say, I can't handle this any longer. The waiting is driving me up the wall. I'm worn out with the indecision, the waiting, the risk involved. And I'm going back to the old secure life, the old life of being a fisherman. And the others, they go along with him. They went fishing. They were fishermen. That's what fishermen did for a living in order to get their food. And they fish all night, but no luck. But then several remarkable things happen. A stranger appears on the shore, cries out, children, have you any fish? I don't know if you've ever spent time around professional fishermen. They tend to be pretty rugged. So the first remarkable thing that happens here is that this stranger calls these fishermen children. And they let him get away with it. Now there is a possibility that the Greek word translated children could also be translated guys. That would go down better, I think, for a bunch of fishermen. At any rate, they answer, no, we haven't caught anything. And so he yells out to them, tells them to cast their nets on the right side of the boat. And they do. And they bring in a huge catch of fish. 153 large fish, the gospel tells us. John turns and says to Peter, it is the Lord. And Simon Peter, excitable and impulsive, dives 
into the water, begins to swim to shore. The others, they come along in the boat. And once the fishermen got to shore, Jesus had a charcoal fire going, cooking breakfast. You know, it's interesting. The only other time in the gospel where, where a charcoal fire is mentioned is when Peter was denying Jesus. Peter had been standing by a charcoal fire when he denied Jesus. And now Jesus, by another charcoal fire, is going to give Peter a chance to redeem himself. Jesus and his disciples, they broiled some fish, they ate some breakfast, and then immediately Jesus singles Peter out and asks Simon, son of John, do you love me? In other words, do you love me more than these, he said in the gospel, these other disciples? Do you love me most of all? And Peter responded, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And so Jesus said, feed my lambs. And then Jesus asked the question two more times, and Peter responded the same way two more times. And the story ends exactly the way it started many months before with Christ saying to Simon at the seashore these words, follow me. Great story. Jam-packed with the stuff of life. Powerful symbols, strong emotions, dramatic lessons. There's a very real human quality to this story. So let's sort it out with a couple of basic questions, human questions. First, what do we see here physically? Well, let's talk about the fish. No, not the one that got away. But the 153 fish in the boat. Now, why in heaven's name did the gospel tell us there were 153 fish? You ever wondered about that? Others have. Cyril of Alexandria in the 5th century said that the 100 represented the fullness of the Gentiles, the 50 symbolized the remnant of Israel, and the 3, of course, was there for the Trinity. St. Augustine of the 5th century as well was a little bit more complicated. He said there are 10 commandments and 7 is the perfect number of grace and add those together, you get 17. Now, if you add all the numbers from 1 to 17 together, 1 plus 2 plus 3 plus 4 plus 5, all the way up to 17, you'll get the number 153. And not only that, but if you were to arrange them with 17 fish on the first row and 16 on the next and 15 and 14 all the way down to the row of 1, you get a perfect triangle, which, of course, symbolizes the Holy Trinity. And then there's St. Jerome, who also lived in the 5th century. He suggested that there were 153 different types of fish in the sea, and it was symbolic of the church reaching all the people in the world. And you can go to any internet search engine and do a search for the 153 fish and find thousands of discussions about why there were 153 fish. But maybe it's mentioned because there were 153 fish. And I'm not trying to be flippant. 
Let's say you're a businessman. Your, your business is fishing. You live in first century Palestine. You've just hauled ashore this boatload of fish. You've dumped them onto the shore. You're going to have to take that catch to market. So here's my question. What's the first thing you're going to do? You're going to count all of those fish. You need to know what the count is. And it is such a remarkable catch. You want to know how many there are. It's a good business day. What else is happening here physically? Well, for one thing, we see the disciples out fishing. And this probably represents the temptation to give up, to throw in the towel, to go back to the old life. That's always the temptation, isn't it, for people of faith? When times get tough, we're tempted to give up to backslide, to go back to our old lifestyle. And then there's the breakfast. Why does John tell us the details about the breakfast on the seashore? The major reason for this part of the story, I think, is to underscore the reality of the resurrection. The resurrection is not a vision. It's not a dream. It's not some hallucination. It's not a hoax. It's not the figment of someone's excited imagination. It's not a plot. It's not the appearance of a phantom or a ghost. No, the risen Lord has defeated death and is out there on the seashore cooking breakfast for his friends, eating with his friends. This is Jesus in his earthly resurrected body eating. What we see here physically documents the reality of the resurrection, which brings us to the second question, what do we feel here emotionally? This is a story charged with emotion, fear and guilt, remorse, excitement, self-doubt, bewilderment. Simon Peter is feeling all of these things. He is at the crossroads raising the very same question that we ought to be dealing with right now. How do I respond to Easter? How do I respond to the resurrection of Jesus? Imagine what is racing through Peter's head. Jesus has yet to have a heart-to-heart -heart with Peter about his three denials. They are sitting down to a meal once again with Jesus. Remember what Peter told Jesus last time they had a meal together. It was at Passover. He told him, Lord, I will never betray you. I will lay down my life for you. And so Simon Peter, after those three denials, is facing the most crucial decision of his life, thinking to himself, which will it be? Will I serve Christ or will I forget about him? Will I take up the torch of his ministry? Will I go on with it knowing the great risks involved? knowing painfully that I have already failed miserably once, I wimped out. I denied my Lord three times. Count them. Three times. What if I do it again? Maybe I'm just a coward at heart. Maybe I should just go back to the old secure life on my fishing boat. How could Jesus ever forgive me anyway? How could he ever trust me again? I bragged, I boasted about my strengths, my commitment. I talked big, but then when the crisis came, I let him down. 
Maybe that's what Simon Peter was feeling that day. And maybe that's why he was so quick to jump into the water, to rush to the shore. He was always impetuous, but there's more here in this scene. It was Peter's way of saying, I'm so sorry I failed you, Lord. I want to be the first to shore, the first in your presence, because I'm so sorry that I failed you. And of course, Jesus was so perceptive. Jesus knew what was going on deep down inside of Peter. And just as he gave doubting Thomas what he needed the week before or sometime before by offering to let him touch his scars physically, now Jesus reaches out to touch Simon Peter emotionally with the help and the healing that he needs. And he takes him aside and he says, Simon, do you love me? Oh, yes, Lord. You know that I love you. Then feed my sheep. And again, they go through this ritual three times. Simon, do you love me? Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Then feed my sheep. Three times. Why? Maybe to let Simon Peter's threefold affirmation of love wipe out the bitter memory of his threefold denial. Jesus was saying to Simon Peter, I believe in you. You are still the rock. You can do it, but you have to put your failure behind you. You are forgiven. The slate is wiped clean. You can start over again. And that is precisely what the risen Christ does for each of us. He knows about our failures. He knows about our fears. And he still loves us. He still believes in us. And he comes to us just like that. With healing. With forgiveness. And he says to each of us, do you love me? Do you love me more than these? Then feed my sheep. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.